Hello, everyone, and welcome to That Time When. Hello! Don't interrupt. Hello! <laughs> so early on, the comedy history podcast. Hello! Where, shush! <laughs> where we talk about strange things that happen in history. I am your host for this week, Barnaby King, and joining me as ever is my co host, Amelia Edwards. Who will not say hello now, okay? She just wants to interrupt me. Hello. <laughs> hello. <laughs> okay, so you and I are millennials, aren't we? Yes, we are. I yes. think we're coming towards the end of millennialdom. But I don't know, there's still a good few years between us and Generation Z. There are. There's at least three. No, there's at least five. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I, we're... Yeah. we're, 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 we're but the millennials start in the 1980s. That's true, but I, I, we're quibbling now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure, we're millennials. Yeah, have you heard of millennials being referred to as Generation Rent? I have, yes. Yeah. Because we rent everything. Yes. We rent our cars, we rent our flats, mm-hmm. we rent... Um, like, we do subscription box services instead yeah. of actually owning anything. Well, I think it's mostly to do with the fact that generally it's not expected that many millennials will own their own house for quite a while. Yeah. And obviously in these troubling economic times, mm-hmm. paying rent is definitely something I think is on people's mind. So I was thinking, what if there was an alternative way to pay your rent? Well, at the moment, I'm just thinking about Marsha and Brian from Space, no. and I'm a little concerned. No, no, no. I'm not talking about sexual favours. <laughs> I'm talking about what if, rather than paying your landlord like £600 a month or anything like that, mm-hmm. you were able to, say, give them maybe a pig, a couple of barrels of ale, and just call it quits. I mean... I think a pig is worth more than £600. I mean, probably nowadays, <laughs> yes. So what I want to talk about this week is a phenomena that happened during the medieval period, um, mm-hmm. specifically looking at England. I think there are some examples of it outside, but I think it, it's mostly contained to England itself. So I'm looking at quite a long period, actually, uh, starting with 1086 with the Doomsday Book. Okay. Um, which, for those who don't know, is essentially a sort of census of England, uh, which was done by uh, William the Conqueror mm-hmm. and his sort of, uh, I was going to say administration. That's not really the word we sort of talk about in that sort of thing. But yes, barons. Like literally because he'd just taken over the country 20 years before and was like, I wonder how much money I have. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So it's a census of the people and more importantly, sort of what they pay, what they yeah. owe to people. And what we find in this is that during this period... Currency doesn't often take the form of coins. That makes sense. People yeah. didn't have much in the way of coins. Exactly. So a lot of people paid various things they owed, particularly to equivalent of landlords, mm-hmm. in goods. Sure, that makes sense. So I've said pigs and ale and that so far. Yeah. But what I'm focusing mostly on today is a form of payment that lasted from 1086 into the 17th century. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Eels. <laughs> That's right. Oh, great. This week we are talking about medieval eel rents. The slipperiest form of rents. <laughs> exactly, yes. 
it's something that I I came across online. It's one of those situations where I sort of I found it and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I always think thought it would be like, you know, an interesting weird occurrence where mm-hmm. some people paid their landlord in eels. Turns out it was a big thing in England for quite a while. <laughs> okay. Um, mm. I don't know where you'd get eels around here. Well, they used to be very prevalent, okay. actually. Um, so looking back at historical data, we kind of guess that the amount of sort of fish life in our rivers has depleted quite drastically since the medieval period um as much as by 50 percent in some places and in some places even more okay is this global warming or is this the fact that medieval people used to overfish uh, I think they well. I think actually we probably overfished. I think it was industrialization oh, okay. that made changes to this. I'm not certain about that. I mm-hmm. must admit. Um, I do know that beavers went extinct because yes. they were considered a form of fish. Yes, that's that's actually something that we'll kind of get into <laughs> a bit later. Not specifically beavers, okay. but that whole idea that you're sort of talking about. So I'm. I've got a lot of my. In fact, I've got pretty much all my information this week from one American historian. Mm-hmm. Is Dr. John Wyatt Greenlee? That's a nice name. It's a great name. Hello uh, to Dr. John Wyatt Greenlee. Hello, and thank you so much. I have never been so interested in eels as <laughs> I was when I came across first your articles and then your Twitter, which I'm going to link mm-hmm. on our Twitter because. It's amazing. He will either talk about eels, put up memes about eels, or just talk about his kids. And sure. it's quite funny. <laughs> I mean, you've shown me some of the eel memes. Yes. They are great. Um, <laughs> and most of them are like references to CAD file and things. Yes. <laughs> like such out of date memes. They're incredible. It's wonderful. I'm so happy with it. It made me, I, I was just overjoyed researching this episode. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, he cites a lot of his information from the Doomsday Book in 1086, which, as I said, recorded taxes. Mm -hmm. And this includes such figures as the village of Harmston, owing Earl Hugh 75,000 eels a year. Okay, okay, I just... I just want to have a moment for the poor steward <laughs> whose job it was to count the eels. Oh, there were actually slightly easier ways that they could go about it, which uh, I'll, okay. I'll talk about a bit later. Um, so that's 75,000. There were fishermen in Wisbeck who owed their local monasteries about 35,000 eels a year. Mm-hmm. Totaled up... By the end of the 11th century, 540,000 eels were being used as currency around the country. Oh, that's (laughs) a lot of eels. So, I've said already, uh, we pointed out that coins were not really widely in circulation for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, it, It took a long time for that sort of thing to really become de facto currency. Like, beforehand, you got all sorts of trade goods essentially being bartered uh, in exchange for what we'd normally use money for. Uh, Eels were a more popular form of currency than cereal crops. Okay. Which are referred to generally in the Doomsday Book as corn, Mm -hmm. but eels were better sourced as payment. (laughs) Why? Well, eels have a few good things to, uh, like, going for them. Right. Firstly, they can be easily dried, 
and oh thus they're preserved. No, that just makes it worse. <laughs> Why do people want dried eels? Because also, they last. All forms of grain last a really long time too. That's true, but they do rot more easily. Than eels? <laughs> dried eels, certainly. Oh my god. <laughs> they're also easier to transport, surprisingly. <laughs> I guess if you've got a dried eel, it's easy enough to carry one over your shoulder or something. <laughs> well, just to continue with the prevalence of this, uh, Greenlee, Dr. Greenlee has made an interactive map where you can see the prominence of eel rents between the 10th and 17th centuries. God bless you, Dr. Greenlee. I mean, eels are his life, which I'm only just looking at his name now. The last three letters of his name backwards does spell eel. Oh, wow. <laughs> nominative determinism, I suggest. <laughs> A sort of cryptic crossword, nominative determinism. <laughs> Okay, so looking at this interactive map, there are definitely areas of the country where it was more popular. That makes sense. The most popular seems to be localised around our our land of East Anglia that we currently reside in. We've got a lot of water here. Exactly. The fens... We do have a lot of water. The fens made for good eel fishing. Great. But it's still spread quite widely across the rest of England. Okay. I, there are pretty high concentrations in many areas, even sort of close to London. Sort of, I think we'd now sort of look at it around sort of Surrey. Okay. There's a lot of eel fishing going on there. <laughs> Fine, sure. And they were like, oh, these eels are great. You can preserve them. Yeah. Because everyone loves dried eels. Oh, they do. They do. Oh, God. So in... 1194, mm -hmm. in order to cross a fen in Huntingtonshire, yeah. a group of monks paid a landowner two pounds each of pepper and ginger a year, Okay, 1,000 eels, oh my God. and a pair of scarlet trousers. Okay, that's my favourite bit. <laughs> that's why I left it for last. Okay, per year? Per year. Did he have like... <laughs> Some member of staff that had to wear scarlet trousers. He was I like, I might no as well idea. just get them off these monks. I don't know. It could very well be that the monks just like made good dyes or something or had access to like high quality trousers. Oh, oh, oh. 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 Um, scarlet yes. was a colour that was only allowed to certain members of the upper classes ah. um, under the... Oh, I can't remember the name of the law, but basically the clothing laws of the time. Right. So actually, it couldn't have been a servant who was wearing it. It would have had to be the lord that ah. was getting this. Well, there we go. But I don't know why you'd do that in taxes. Because also, like, did you, did he get to have a say in what the scarlet trousers were like? Or were you just like, you know, bog standard? Is it like when you order a pair of skinny jeans and you know that they're going to look like skinny jeans? Or is it like just um, he would say, okay, so this year I'd like them laced down the sides, please. Well, I think considering he was getting a pair, one pair a year, mm -hmm. I'd kind of hope that he'd have a bit of a say in what they looked like and what sort of style was going on with them. Maybe he had a unit form like in the Beano. Maybe he was like one of those yeah. characters that just always wore the same clothes every Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah. But we're getting away from the point, which is the thousand eels. The thousand eels <laughs> is interesting. That's true. I guess yeah. the problem is that I'm still just, I'm not really taken with this demand for eels. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of explain it a little bit more later on. All right. But I just want to stick with this landowner owner for a moment because there is some more interesting stuff about him. Mm -hmm. So eventually... 
unfortunately, he did die. Oh. And his widow, she decided that she wanted to renegotiate the deal with the monks. Uh, seems partly because she didn't want any more scarlet trousers. Well, fair enough. She's not allowed to wear trousers. Exactly, exactly. So the deal gets updated. And it becomes half a mark of coins. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know about marks as a unit of currency. They were weighed, weren't they? Yes. It uh, was something that was introduced by the Danes uh, when they first sort of came across to this country. Oh, good old Danes. They know stuff. Yep. And I like having that in there because I've got to get a Viking reference into the episode somewhere. <laughs> so half a mark of coins, mm-hmm. uh, about 60 cartloads of firewood. Okay. And 1,000 eels. Yay! (laughs) The eels were important, damn it. Okay, so this lady is a landlady of Huntingdon. Yes. I'm pretty sure that's a very wet county. (laughs) Well, that's probably why the monks had all the eels. Well, yes, but they're paying to cross Huntingdon. Doesn't she already have eels of her own? Uh, Yeah, but you have to remember that eels at this point are currency. That's true. They're being bartered. Um... Green, Dr. Greenlee did an estimate of the value of eels. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Greenlee. So I, I'm not going to sort of read out the full thing because I, I can't be bothered. Okay. Um, but as, just as a little soundbite, Dr. Greenlee calculated that an Amazon Prime subscription... Oh, my God. I love this man. <laughs> He's absolutely mad. I know. It's I great. do hope he listens to this episode, but I am sorry for calling you absolutely mad, Dr. Greenlee. <laughs> I don't know, looking at Twitter, I think he'd appreciate it. Sure. So, an Amazon Prime subscription would cost between 150 and 300 eels a year. Jesus! Yeah. That's a lot of eels. It's a lot of eels, but it seems that eel fishing was just incredibly prevalent. Okay. Um, And there are a few reasons for this, and one of them is something you've already kind of referred to. Is it the fact that people could only eat fish on Fridays? Yes. <laughs> and particularly with thinking about during Lent. Oh, yeah. They had so many fast days in those days. Yes. The monks actually complained about it because I think they had more fast days than normal days. <laughs> no, that's true. No, I, 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 totally, I totally believe you from what I, from what I know of this sort of thing. Mm. But yeah, eels were on that sort of exemption list. And this is something that kind of goes back to something we've talked about before. You remember when we did your episode about the giants in Albion? Oh, yes. And how the the ladies there would eat meat and become very lusty. Mm-hmm. Well, eels were considered not to make people lusty. Sure. I mean, they are a depressing sounding thing. <laughs> not just that. Not just that. But because of uh, work by, I think it was Aristotle, mm-hmm. that was believed until around the 16th century. As everything Aristotle wrote was. Exactly. People thought that eels reproduced asexually. Oh, they thought that about most fish. Yes. I mean, this is because, in particular with eels, they went off into the Atlantic yeah. to breed and then came back. Oh, this is a time for a shout out to another podcast, which is um, the BBC Earth podcast. Okay. Um, They did this really fascinating little documentary on the life of eels. And honestly, (laughs) I never thought I would be interested, but it is amazing. Eels? Totally check it out. It's in one of their first episodes. Eels can be surprisingly fascinating. (laughs) Just, oh my gosh, the life cycle of an eel is just (laughs) magical. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) What has my life become? (laughs) 
What? Don't you want to be talking about eel rents? Uh, the answer is yes, but I feel like it shouldn't be. Okay, what's your problem with eel rents? Um, okay, my problem with eels mm. is that I tend to think of them in a couple of different contexts. Yeah. Firstly, I've read too many things where people have fished for eels and then mm-hmm. had to leave them in a bathtub or something because they're really muddy creatures. <laughs> so I'm kind of imagining, you know, medieval water supplies being what they were, you know, not ideal, mm-hmm. that these were not a great thing to be eating. And the other thing I've mostly read about is like the number of medieval kings who died of eating too many eels so i just have this image of all these like i don't know really unhealthy feeling people being like i don't know what's wrong with me i don't know why i'm feeling all sort of bloated at the moment i've eaten so many eels and they're so good for you they're the acorns of the fish world well you are you are right to some extent so eaten raw the blood of an eel is incredibly toxic (laughs) great But it is it is safe when it's cooked or if it's been dried. Okay. But you are right that there is definitely this connotation in the medieval period between eels and death. Yeah. And it does seem particularly there's a sort of link to royal deaths. So the son of King Stephen of England, mm-hmm. uh, he died when he choked to death on a plate of eels. Mm. Alexander III of Scotland had a dinner of eels just before he died. Although, to be fair, he died from falling off a horse, so I don't think the eels are to blame. They're just a sort of omen. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Robert the Bruce's physician said that the king often put his life at risk by eating eels caught in muddy waters. See? See? Why are people... like? Is it like that sushi thing when you eat those um, puffer fish? Is it like people are like, oh, feel a bit risk-takey today, and it is a delicacy? Well, not quite. I think there's something else muddying the waters. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm going to use this opportunity to say that actually, the son of um, the son of Stephen, who yeah. died of choking on eels, that story was first written down about a hundred years after he died. That makes sense. So we cannot be certain whether that is true, but if it is. <laughs> Then Henry the First died of eels. Mm-hmm. Stephen's son died of eels. Mm-hmm. Henry the First, as you know, was Henry the Second's grandfather. Yes. Henry the Second owed his position on the throne to two deaths of eels. <laughs> if this much is true. Well, like I say, I think there are some things that are. I'm, I'm not going to do that joke again. No, I, was, don't, I, was, don't. I was almost about to. I'm very tired. <laughs> Anyway, there is definitely a connection in people's minds between eels and death. Okay. So, firstly, I've pointed out that Eastern raw eels are deadly poisonous. Yeah. Because of the toxic blood. Yeah. But there is another possible reason. A reason related to murder most foul. Go on, then. That is that it has been posited uh, by Dr. Greenlee... That eels... <laughs> the only man who gives a shit about medieval eels. <laughs> he is so into eels. Uh, he posits that eels might actually have been a very good vector for poisoning people. Okay. Because there's such a strong taste to them. Oh my god. That they mask the flavour of poisons. <laughs> 
And not just that, but people have already sort of got this connection between eels and death. Yeah. So if someone dies after eating a plate of eels... They're not going to be think that's suspicious. No. Okay. It's because they were eating eels. I mean, Robert the Bruce's physician is like, man, you're going to eat those eels, you're going to die. Yeah. So it's very easy for someone to just poison someone and then go, oh no, the eels killed them. <laughs> That's incredible. There is another possibility as well. Okay. And that is just basically the law of averages or the law of large numbers. Right. Because of the sheer amount of eels being eaten in Britain. Yeah. Means that it was very likely that many people would have eaten eel as their last meal. So... That rhymed. (laughs) It did rhyme, yes. But... It's one of those things. You can totally see how this would happen. Mm-hmm. Someone eats an eel, they die for unrelated reasons. Like I said earlier, um, Alexander III had eels before his death, but yeah. he fell off a horse. Yes, but it was the eels that did it. Well, this is what you imagine people might say, and this is why these stories probably got around. Mm. I guess it's like saying that chicken kills people easily because so many people eat chicken all the time. Yeah, exactly. Despite this sort of connection with death, it didn't stop eels from being very popular. (laughs) Like I say, partly because of their religious significance and their Mm -hmm. sort of usefulness in that regard, they were still part of this sort of de facto currency into the 16th and 17th centuries. Great. Now, they did decline uh, because quickly people started using coins more frequently. Mm -hmm. But... Still, eels were uh, quite widely used. Now, if we go back to the Doomsday Book, there are 221 separate agreements about eel trading. Okay. Now, this was the height of eel rent popularity, and it did decrease in subsequent centuries. But you're still looking at sort of around the 15th century, there's still about 49 recorded sort of tax-based transactions involving eels. Okay. Now, I've said before, like, we're dealing with quite a lot of eels here. And you were like, how are we going to, how are you going to transport them? Are you just going to stick them on your shoulder? Or is someone going to count 3,000 eels? Yeah. Well, they did have a sort of standard unit of measurement for eels. Oh, my God. Okay. Eels were dried to preserve them. And Mm -hmm. they were bundled together in sticks was the unit for them. And a stick of eels would be 25 eels. (laughs) do you ever get that thing where you say a word so many times that it loses all meaning see I've just been watching you say these sentences like oh this was when eel trading reached the height of its popularity and I'm like you never thought you'd say that sentence did you what has this podcast become (laughs) well anyway okay so a stick of eels is 25 25 eels and they're dried and they're dried okay gets this name because it seems that you could literally put 25 eels on a stick and dry them easily like any more and it becomes hard to get it like a fire that's of the right consistent temperature or smoke or anything like that in order to dry them sort of equally across all eels right yes i get what you mean yeah so you did kind of have They were kind of a currency, like you had a standard unit of measurement for them. Great. And of course, it made it easier to count them Mm -hmm. when rather than just having 3,000 very dry eels, you've just got 
a load of sticks of them that you can just easily separate. Yeah, and then being in units of 25 is quite helpful for Exactly, counting. yeah. So really, people were quite practical about it. Okay. This was something that, you know, people did eat. I yeah. know you, you've been like, oh my God, this is the grossest thing ever. No, I don't, I don't think it's particularly gross. I just think it's a bit sad, especially when they're dried. Like, I'm just... I need to find some medieval recipe for dried eels now <laughs> to find out, like, what what do you do with your dried eels? Well, there were certain use... There were certain sort of things that they were quite useful for. Partly sort of the eel season mm -hmm. um, and the amount of time it took to dry them and sort of proper storage and everything like that neatly coincides with the beginning of Lent. Oh, useful. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons that they were very popular mm. was you could basically catch them, store them, and Lent comes around and you're fasting even more than you already are fasting. Yeah, but you've got all of these nice dried eels that you're putting into a stew, maybe? Quite possibly. I mean... Having smoked eel and, and, um, and cream cheese sandwiches? I don't know. Well, I, I kind of think that some of this sort of mentality does survive in... Even in sort of popular culture today, you only have to look at things like The Simpsons. And if they, if if anyone looks at like England in the Victorian period, mm -hmm. one of the things they talk about people eating is eel pie. Yeah. Well, yes, but I don't know if that was made of dried eels. Well, you're you're focusing too much on the dried. I don't but. think I am. <laughs> if they're if they're like using them as currency in, in a dry state, then obviously there's something that people can do with three thousand dried eels that I just I just don't know. Maybe it's eel jerky. Could be. Could Have you be. ever thought about that? I mean, it would be interesting if you effectively had like medieval style cowboys chewing <laughs> on their eel jerky and spitting into like yieldy spittoons. <laughs> I don't think that's sort of beyond the realms of belief. No, I don't think so either. But it's just it's it's one of those things. It's one of those things that you don't think about until suddenly it arrives smack in your brain, and you're like, "What the, what the hell were people doing with all these e dried eels?" I think this is just a thing. You're like, you don't expect it of the medieval period because it just it do it doesn't sound right. No, you kind of imagine that people are just eating, you know bread and maybe like game that they've hunted or anything like that well i got taught in year seven and i didn't believe it at the time and i had a lot of arguments with my um teachers at the time that medieval peasants only ever ate vegetables and bread mm. i still don't believe that that's true no i i think that well i, I think it partly depends on the area mm. and obviously being a country where i don't think there's anywhere in England that you're more than 75 miles from the coast yeah so any sort of like fish is going to be pretty plentiful and transportable mm. uh, in fact on that note in the doomsday book almost 10% of eel transactions involved the eels being transported over 100 miles oh wow these things got around <laughs> <laughs> and that's not even sort of like thinking about Eels are sort of just being transported here and there or anything like that. Like, they, they, they moved around a lot. Mm. And now I'm just thinking about, like, the eel travelling salesman <laughs> going on his lonely journeys from the coast to the countryside. Well, I think it's also is that people could sort of send them to their landlords, That's as true. it were. So their landlords might not live particularly near them. If we're thinking about, like, barony, barony, baronies? Yes. Yes, baronies. 
don't know why so. I got yeah I don't know why I got stuck on that word but there we go yeah I mean that makes sense I'm pretty sure that the person that the family who were in charge of Bramber Castle down on the south coast were at one point the Earls of Huntingdon but not the ones that you're thinking about no but yeah that's a really long way <laughs> but yeah so you know that's another advantage of drying the eels that is makes them easily transportable because you're basically sending a fishy briefcase <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> So, have you heard enough about eels? Probably No, not. you haven't. <laughs> well, I imagine that um, <laughs> Dr. Greenlee's got more to say. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Dr. Greenlee also links further religious significance to the eel, and that is in the form of temperance. Okay. So, even though when we look back in history, most people would have drunk alcohol as a matter of course in the form of things like small beer mm-hmm. so very weak beer that was safer to drink than water because you know the alcohol killed germs yeah but people were still concerned about people who were you know drunkards and drinking strong drinks and everything like that mm-hmm. Isidore of Seville who we've talked about before love Isidore of Seville <laughs> in the 7th century wrote that an alcoholic who drank alcohol in which an eel had been left, would be left with a powerful distaste for drink forevermore and would never want to consume alcohol again. I can only agree with Isidore. I mean, yeah. Does he mean a dried eel or a living eel? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's a dead eel. Okay. I don't think it's dry. Okay. And I think that's part of the reason why this is the thing, because it's quite possible that the toxins in the eel blood might have secreted themselves into the alcohol. Yeah. And thus basically, you know, you get that thing where people have some bad shellfish. Yeah. My mum's done this yeah, with mussels. They're so violently ill that then you, you just can you never eat, eat it again. again. Yeah. I think it's that sort of thing. Sounds like it. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, even if... Okay, imagine that I drank some strong ale that somebody had left, say, a salmon in. Mm. I think I'd still be very off-put for a long time. Well, yeah, I think eel wine sounds pretty gross, regardless of whether or not it has any actual, like, toxic effect. Yeah, but... Okay, sure. This so, wine tastes a bit fishy. So now I've been poisoned mildly by my ale <laughs> and I can never drink ale again. Yes. Cool. I think it's like some stronger liquors as well or like wine or anything like that. Oh, sure. But as a result, eels did also kind of become synonymous with temperance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an idea that survived even into the early modern period. Really? And beyond, yeah. So there was um, Dr. Greenlee... Uh, has cites this idea that's been posited around i forget who by that it basically there's a myth that in the medieval period eels were a hangover cure oh okay eels and almonds and he Hmm. brings it back to this idea that isidore of seville had that you know eel wine would put you off drinking yeah and that kind of gets transmuted into eels Eels are are a hangover hangover cure. cure okay yeah um dr greenlee advises against using this medieval cure because as i say the blood of an eel is very toxic yes <laughs> although presumably if it's a dried eel or a well-cooked eel then you'd be all right although just full of eel yeah which to be honest if you've got a hangover 
I don't think I want the taste of eel. I mean, I I've, I I can't remember if I've ever had eel. I have never eaten eel. I, I might have had it on like sushi just to show quite how middle class I am. Um, <laughs> but I think that's about the extent of it. But if it was on sushi, then maybe it was raw. <gasps> no. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're not here to poison us. <laughs> okay, so eels are... <laughs> yep, just start off a new conversation with eels. <laughs> you can't hear that word anymore. I can can't you? hear it. It no. doesn't mean anything I've said to you. It so many times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's just a couple more bits that I want to talk about. But are you going to be able to? <laughs> yes, I am. Okay. So eels. <laughs> yes, eels. <laughs> We're not just an English phenomena. Well, no. As as I say, like, the sort of nature of England means that it's particularly suited for eel farming. Mm -hmm. But there were situations where eels were involved in sort of uh, international trade. Cool. And we know this because in 1392, Richard II had to cut tariffs on eels coming from continental Europe because the price of eels had risen so high in England thanks to the demand of them. Okay. So they did affect trade beyond just English farmers paying their landlord or a monastery paying someone or being paid in eels. This is... This is a global, this is a global Britain surrounded by an eel. So despite the fact that eels are a bit of an international thing, mm-hmm. I do know of one per- one place, one person, one place quite close to us where eels were definitely not a thing. Okay. And that is Ireland. Right. I- Ireland did not like the eel. Okay. And this goes back to Irish mythology about eels. And you're waving your hands and smiling very why. widely because you why know, they don't, don't like you? Eels. Yes, it's because of St. Patrick and the snakes. <laughs> oh, that's not what I'm actually looking at oh, here. No. You, okay. you go, you go with yours first. Okay, so my theory was this: mm-hmm. St. Patrick is known for driving the snakes out of Ireland, despite the fact there were no snakes. Shit. <laughs> um, the reason there are no snakes in Ireland is because St. Patrick drove them out. Duh. So um, maybe they didn't like eels because eels are like snakes. And they were like, oh, but these ones are still here. Thus we hate them. No, it's not quite that. But it goes back to roots in Irish mythology that say when an eel starts to whistle, it is a sign of impending famine. Okay, question. Yes. Do eels whistle? I believe they can produce a whistling sound. Oh my god. Yes. I think it's something to do with like it's part of their life cycle. Um I don't think it's particularly common or like it's not easy to hear unless you're like you got a lot of them or you're right close to them or something. Okay. But either way, this idea went into Irish mythology and it was handed down for quite a while that whistling eels are a, a sort of omen of famine. Do you hear that, princess? Those are the whistling eels. Ah, <laughs> oh, the Princess Bride, such a good film. It is. Um I'm actually wondering though, if I, I'm not entirely sure how far back this goes because part of me is thinking so the english Mm -hmm. love eels right yeah the irish view eels as a sign of impending famine 
Yeah. Maybe this is just a big metaphor for relations between England and Ireland. After all, the English have caused famines in Ireland before. That's true. I'm aware the timing doesn't match the up. The timing doesn't match but up. I, I just thought it's a wonderful sort of like little little sort of yeah I see historical what you mean. Little, coincidence. Yeah. What? How? <laughs> How does one prevent wheel- eels from whistling? Like, do you just not go near the eels in case you hear them whistling? Or... No, I, I think it's more just the fact that, like, if you hear an eel whistling, it's a bad sign. Okay, yes. But, I mean, like, I was wondering if they did anything about it. Um, I'm not sure. I'd have to ask Dr. Greenlee. Okay. Well, here's a thing to tweet at him. Yeah, Dr. Greenlee, if you're listening, <laughs> and I hope you are, um, and I hope I've done you, a, like not done you a disservice in this episode um as we've said on many previous episodes we are not historians <laughs> we rely on people like dr greenlee and their obsession with eels exactly exactly so dr greenlee if you are listening and if you're not very angry at us please tell us if the whistling eels was a thing sort of like where it came from in irish mythology yeah that'd be great yeah if anyone else knows, that would be amazing. That too. would also be amazing. Yes, I'm not going to just uh, like narrow this just to Dr. Greenlee. I'm sure there's other people out there who are interested in eels. Probably not as much as Dr. Greenlee, but there you we are. You may have a passing knowledge about Irish eel mythology. Exactly. But I also thought that this episode is quite timely. <laughs> is it because of the fishing thing? <laughs> yes, it is. But, okay, yeah, go on. <laughs> well, think about it. Like... All this stuff about Brexit talks being stalled because of, like, fishing rights and that. Mm-hmm. But you know what we always have rights to? What? Our own rivers, and that's where you find the eels. Exactly. So, inevitably, when everything collapses and it goes to pot, we can just send eels back into the rivers. We can turn that into our currency because the pound has crashed <laughs> and we'll all be carrying sticks of dried eels over our shoulders to pay our landlords. Which brings us back to a nice circle to the beginning of the episode and I think it's a good place to end. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening to Barnaby's insane ramblings about eels. Um, if you'd like to... If you'd like to follow us on any services, we are on Twitter at thattimewhen4, or you can email us with any suggestions for anything that's not eel-based on ttwpod <laughs> at gmail.com. No, send more facts about eels. <laughs> I've become an eel fanatic. Um, <laughs> You've you... got to believe me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Am I making you really upset? Oh, man. Okay. If you'd like to, um, like, uh, share... Uh, if you'd, sorry. <laughs> I'm in your brain now. Well, I've like, slithered in there like an eel. It's partly you. It's partly the fact that the rabbit is, like, hopping around around my feet at the same time. Oh, so whenever I'm not being distracted by whatever nonsense you're spouting, I've got this bunny <laughs> buffing my feet. Oh, he's a good boy. Um, if you like to um at us on twitter um and share us with your friends that would be amazing and we'll give you a shout out at the end of our next episode and lastly thanks to kevin mcleod for any of the music that we've put in this episode including our theme song anachronist thank you so much bye, bye.